Uh, he may become famous around here. I just found out that uh, Sam uh, expedited uh, Les and Jan Goodrich's uh, adoption some years ago. So he's had some contact with, with us in recent years, 11 years ago, I believe. Um, but I, I'll tell you what I like most about Sam is just the simplicity of what he has to say. There's, he's going to talk about one thing that you will never forget. Anyone can be uh, can confuse things and be complex, but Sam's message is just very, very simple. And I know that you're going to be enriched and blessed as a result of his ministry to us. So Sam, come and, and uh, speak to us. Thank you, David. Good to be here. Mother's Day. Your church is like our church. On Mother's Day, mothers get flowers. On Father's Day, fathers get sermons on how to be better better fathers. (laughs) There's a story about uh, a mother who had two sons. One became a preacher and the other became a lawyer. One day a friend of hers asked how her sons were doing and she asked, which one do you want to hear about first, the one who preaches or the one who practices? And uh, I have uh, two children, uh, Monica, who's 18, and Ryan, who's turned 16 this weekend, yesterday, so this is driver's license time. And a few years ago when I was accepted to practice before the U.S. Supreme Court, I came home all excited had my license to practice before that court and, and announced it at the dinner table. And my wife didn't congratulate me. She asked me how much it cost. And uh, when I said $100, Monica, who practiced piano at the time and still does, she turns to me and she says, $100 just to practice? And uh, it's a matter of how you perceive things. Today we're going to look at two stories, one that about women one that goes back 2,500 years, the story of Esther. I'd like to have you turn to that story in your Bible, if you would. And then we're going to hear the story of Natalia, a Christian woman lawyer in Russia who at this very moment is uh, ministering to literally thousands of inmates in prisons throughout Russia. Esther, an orphan who became queen because of God's sovereignty, and Natalia, who is serving the Lord, Natalia, who became widowed at age 26 and left with a six-year-old son, both living out their stories as God writes the story. You know, life is a story. Uh, I'm a uh, lawyer. I'm not a preacher. I've never gone to seminary. I've never had homiletics and hermeneutics and calisthenics and all that kind of thing. I, I went to law school to learn how to tell stories because that's what lawyers do. We're storytellers. We go to court and we tell a story that we hope is more convincing than our adversary's story. And then, of course, the judge writes his own story. That's known as an opinion. And uh, we hope that that story coincides with our version of the facts. Uh, we write stories. We call them wills. Contracts are boring stories, uh, but there's, we're, we're storytellers. And, of course, life is a story. The Bible tells us that, that great psalm, the pro-life psalm, Psalm 139, has a verse in there that says in verse 16 that 
All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. In other words, God wrote the story. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Thy will be done. What are we saying? We're saying, Lord, your will, your story, your script for me this day, help me live it. Of course, the greatest story ever told, the uppercase gospel, all capital letters, is that, is that God became man, Jesus. That's the good news, the gospel, all capital letters. The lowercase, small letter gospel, good news is that Christ lives in us. We are the rest of the story. And we're going to hear some of those stories this morning. Uh, John 1, just to read it a little bit differently. We know it so well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Let me change it just a little bit. Take license here. In the beginning was the story, and the story was with God, and the story was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, we received the story, and without him, there is no story. Believe that? Do you believe that? Is God just an idea, or is God a person who is active today in your life? Is your life a story? I want you to remember what we're going to share this morning, so I'm going to give you an acrostic. That's the only way I've made it through college and law school and the bar exam. Reduce everything down to some acrostics. And I want to give you an acrostic this morning. If you have a piece of paper, the back of the bulletin, it's a five-letter acrostic. The word is story, and I want you to write that vertically. S-T-O-R-Y. That's the outline for the message this morning. Story. See, all of God's stories, whether it's in the Bible or lived out in our lives, have five very key elements in them. S-T-O-R-Y. The S is sovereignty. All of God's stories point to his sovereignty. We sang song after song this morning about sovereignty. We heard this lovely Solo, you are sovereign still and forever wise. I can see the miracles opening my eyes. Sovereignty. God is sovereign. That's the S. God is in control. T in the acrostic stands for timing, that God's timing is perfect. As we'll see in the story of Esther, his timing is incredible. And as we'll see in Natalia's story, the timing is perfect. Because God is a God of perfection. The O in the word story is for opportunities for service. All of God's stories provide an opportunities for service. None of his stories are intended to amuse us or for amusement. The word amuse comes from the Greek word muse. And when the Greeks wanted to do the exact opposite, give the opposite meaning, they slapped an A in front of it. That amusement meant to think. Amuse means not to think. So if you want to give a backhanded compliment to someone, just tell them that you find them very amusing. In other words, that they don't have a brain in their head. That's what. So that's amusing. But God doesn't amuse us with his stories. They're there for a purpose, and it's an opportunity for service. 
And then the R in story, redemption. All of God's stories point to redemption. We sang song after song this morning about redemption. Not only a sovereign God, but a redeemer. And then finally, the why. What's your response? Every story calls for a response. How do you relate to the message in the story? What's your perspective of God? Is he just an idea or is he a person? Is he the author of not only the book, but the author of your life? Perspective is important. Yesterday I shared what's my favorite story. It deals with perception. It's a true story. A friend of mine uh, had to spend an hour at Chicago O'Hare Airport. How many of you have ever been to Chicago O'Hare Airport? Most of you. Okay. We've all done one thing at Chicago O'Hare Airport, and that is wait. If you've never been there, you have one thing to look forward to at Chicago O'Hare. It's the busiest airport in the world, but you will wait. And Bruce had to wait for about an hour, and he went to buy a bag of cookies, and he returned, and he put his cookies down and took off his coat, put his coat down in his briefcase, and then he went to get a newspaper. And when he returned, there was this student, sort of a long-haired fellow sitting next to the bag of cookies, and and so Bruce sat on the other side, so the cookie separated the two and began reading his paper. And uh, a few moments later, Bruce picked up the bag, opened it up, took out a cookie, put the bag down. And then much to Bruce's surprise, the student, without making any request, simply picked up the bag, looked at Bruce and smiled and helped himself to a cookie. A totally lack of etiquette. And Bruce was not happy. He had just lost a cookie. And so Bruce picked up the bag and took out a second cookie, leaving one in the bag, and he put the bag down. And now he was reading USA Today with one eye and keeping the other eye on that bag to make sure that he didn't lose it. And the student was also looking at the bag, trying to figure out what he should do, and finally picks up the bag, smiles at Bruce, takes the last cookie out and graciously breaks it in half, puts half back in, gets up and leaves. And all that Bruce got in return for one and a half cookies was smiles from the student. And Bruce was not happy. He, he could no longer read the paper. He could do nothing except think of having lost one and a half cookies, and he closes it all up. Time to catch his flight. Goes over, picks up his briefcase, and angrily picks up his coat. And there he discovers, all the while, under his coat was his bag of cookies. <laughs> Now, let me ask you. Christ taught us that the lamp of the body is the eye. How we perceive things is very important. If the lamp is, if the eye is clear, if our perception is clear, the body is full of light. But if our perception is not clear, the body is full of darkness. Our perception is very, very important. How do you perceive life? Bruce had two problems. He had a misperception of the vertical dimension. He thought he was the owner of the cookies. He wasn't the owner. He also had a misperception of the horizontal, to love your neighbor as yourself, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The student, to his credit, to this day probably wondering why that businessman in his three-piece suit and button-down collar and the red power tie, why he would give such looks while he's eating his cookies. <laughs> he knew, he had a proper perception of ownership. He knew who the owner was. And he also had a proper perception of the horizontal to do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. What's your perception? It's important. Let's take a look at Esther. 
a great story, one that would take you maybe 20 or 30 minutes to read. It's not a book. Something this short is not a book. It's a story that demonstrates God's sovereignty and his love and care for his people. It's one of only two books named for women in the Bible, Ruth being the other. Uh, the book is unusual in that in the original version, no name, title, or pronoun for God appears in it. But you can't read this story without seeing God's definite presence throughout the story. It has drama, power, romance, intrigue. It has everything that makes for a great story. story about Esther, an orphan raised by her cousin Mordecai. This story begins with Queen Vashti being banished because she would not entertain her husband's friends. And shortly thereafter, the king begins to search for a new queen and Esther becomes the queen, a young Jewish woman, an orphan becoming queen. Only God can do that in his sovereign plan. Orphans don't become queens, but Esther did. Mordecai became a government official, and during his tenure, he foiled an assassination plot. What did he get in return? No recognition, no reward, no news coverage, nothing, because the timing wasn't there. He would get his opportunity later. And there's a third character in the story, a fellow named Haman, an evil, self-serving man who was appointed second-in-command in the empire. And Haman wanted everyone to bow down to him, and when Mordecai refused to bend his knee to bow down to Mordecai in reverence, Haman became so furious that he determined not only to destroy Mordecai, but to kill all the Jews along with him. And to accomplish his vengeful deed, Haman deceived the king and persuaded him to issue a decree condemning the Jews to death. Mordecai told Queen Esther about this the edict and urged her to see the king, but see, to go into the king's presence without an invitation meant taking your life into your own hands, and Esther was reluctant to do that. But here was an opportunity for service. Mordecai responds to her initial hesitation with these words in chapter 4, verse 12. When Esther's words of hesitation were reported to Mordecai, Mordecai sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Then Esther began her plan to intercede for the Jews. She went to the king, and the king 
admitted her into his presence, and she asked for one request, and that was that she would could throw a banquet, a party. This was a king who loved parties. He had one going for 180 days. And so she decided to throw a little banquet for the king and for Haman the following day. And Haman was invited to that banquet. And at this banquet, the king asked, What do you want from me? He says, Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. Esther replied, Chapter 5, verse 7. My petition, my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I would prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. That's the story. Now, Haman went out that day from that first banquet, as we see in verse 9 of chapter 5, in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh's wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows built 75 feet high and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the gallows built. That closes that part of the story. And now we see God intervene with his incredible timing. As we see at the beginning of chapter 6, that the king could not sleep. And we pick up the story in chapter 6. That night the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. See, God's timing is now moving into place. Mordecai received no recognition when he saved the king earlier. But now in God's perfect timing, we see what's going to take place. Because the king couldn't sleep and he just happened. Coincidence, chance, accident, or sovereignty happened to read the newspaper clippings about what Mordecai had done for him sometime earlier. Now the king overheard some noise, and he says, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. Bad timing, Haman. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? 
Now Haman thought to himself, who is there the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe. The king has worn and the horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman, get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He rode Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And you know the rest of the story. We're at the next luncheon, the next banquet, Esther revealed Haman's plan. And the king ordered Haman to be hung from the gallows at Mordecai that had been built for Mordecai. And in the final act of this true life drama, Mordecai was appointed to Haman's position and the Jews were guaranteed protection. They were redeemed throughout the land. The theme of all of God's stories All the opportunities for service always point to redemption. And to celebrate this historic occasion, the Feast of Purim was established, which the Jews celebrate in February of each year to this day. And because of Queen Esther's act, her act of courage, her willingness to be open to serve, to respond to the opportunity, the God-given opportunity, she seized it, her people were saved, her life made a difference. Read Esther, I challenge you this week, read it and watch for God at work in your life. Perhaps he's prepared you to act in such a time as this. Sovereignty, timing is always perfect, opportunity for service, redemption. Now your response, how do you respond to that? You say, that's a Bible story, Sam, 2,500 years ago. Bible stories don't really relate to me. Things don't happen like that anymore. God isn't sovereign. His timing doesn't click in like that anymore. Well, let me tell you the story of Natalia, one person who is seeking to be available for such a time as this. She's a lawyer in Russia. I'd never been to Russia until last January, and the way I got there was that in the November of 1990, I was at a meeting with some Christian lawyers in North Carolina, and three of us were sitting at breakfast Saturday morning, talking about Russia. And we said, it'd be nice to go to Russia. It seemed like every other American was going to Russia. And we hadn't been there yet. And So that was on Saturday. That was the desire of our heart. On Monday of the following week, two days later, I get a call from a professor at a Christian college in New York City asking if I would come up with my two colleagues to visit with four members of the Soviet Academy of Sciences who were visiting the college that week. So I said, fine, we'd be up there. And at the end of that week, we took the train to New York City and met with these four members of the Soviet Academy of Sciences who invited us to Moscow to meet with the members of the academy to talk about ethics and law and to meet with lawyers and judges. 
Six days after we had expressed the desire of our heart to go to Russia, the invitation was there. Good luck, isn't it? Coincidence? Accident? No, this is sovereignty. We arrived in Moscow on the day the Persian Gulf War started, January 17th. An interesting place to watch that event. When we arrived, we discovered that our hosts, these scientists, didn't know any lawyers. And that's why we were there, to meet with lawyers and judges. But a few days before our arrival, our host, one of them, had met, just in an encounter, the editor of the largest law journal in Russia. And he told him that he had invited some American lawyers to Russia and we were hoping to meet with some judges and lawyers and could this editor arrange the meetings? And he said he would. And our first meeting in Moscow was with the chief justice of the Russian Republic. Why start at the bottom? Why not go right to the top? And we spent two hours talking with this chief justice about things like ethics, the vertical dimension to life, that there is someone greater than the system. His name is God. The horizontal dimension, to love your neighbor as yourself, to do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, as the central principle of all human relationships, the core of all law, not because we said it, but because that's what Christ said. We went from there to meet with the Minister of Justice of the Russian Republic, Boris Yeltsin's right arm, a 32-year-old young lawyer who wrote their freedom of religion law, their freedom of speech law. And during our discussion, he said, you know, we really need to re-examine a Christian basis for law in this country, and we invite you to bring your Christian law professors and lawyers over to teach in our 33 law schools. And so last summer, five law professors did just that, and some will be going back this year. And then we met somebody on the other side of the fence, a communist, hardline, another minister, who told us this. He says, the Communist Party, now this is in January 1991, this is eight months before the coup attempt. He said that the Communist Party in Russia is relatively weak right now, but we're very well organized. And then he said this, and it sent chills down our spines. He said, in one night, we can do away with the opposition. Evil works at night. Those were three we met. Then one Friday morning, just a few days before we were to return to the U.S., I said to a colleague, I hope I meet at least one Christian lawyer before I return. Of course, that was a long-shot hope because in that country, Christians have never been allowed to get into the professions. But an hour later, I met Natalia. And why was Natalia at this meeting? Because two days earlier, she was in the clerk's office in the Ministry of Justice in Russia filing some papers to start a prison ministry that she has launched that in the last 15 months has helped over 4,000 inmates with all sorts of needs and problems. And she had just launched this, and she'd filed these papers. And while she was filing the papers, one of the guides, one of the hosts from our party, happened to be in the clerk's office for some reason. And he overheard her say, church, prisons, and Christians. And he went over to her, total stranger, and asked her if she went to church. And she said, yes. And he asked her, are you a lawyer? She said, yes. Are you a Christian? And she said, yes. And he asked her, would you like to meet some Christian lawyers from America? And she said, I've practiced law for 20 years. I've never met a Christian lawyer. Some people think that 
Christian lawyer is an oxymoron, a contradiction in terms. <laughs> and so there she was on Friday morning at this meeting. Chance, luck, accident? Or sovereign God whose timing is perfect? And at lunch that day, I heard Natalia tell about her having left her profession her job to launch this prison ministry on her own. She is sort of a cross between the Mother Teresa with compassion and the Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady of England, an incredible person who has no fear. And I said, you know what you're trying to do? And because she was going to go public in the newspapers with this ministry. I said, isn't this rather risky? And her response to me was, Sam... I'm in my 40s. I have one son. He's 19. He's old enough to take care of himself. And if I perish, I perish. A few days later, I met Natalia's son, Nicky. And immediately, I was impressed by this young man, 19, a computer whiz, and asked him if he wanted to come to the United States to study in a Christian college. His eyes lit up. And I said, now, Nikki, one problem you have is your English on a scale of 1 to 10 is about a 3. What, what you need is to improve it. And this, the best way to improve your English skills is to read English out loud. And I gave him my NIV New Testament little pocket and gave it to him. I said, now, I want you to make a commitment to me. I want you to promise to read this book out loud one hour every single day. And I'll go back to the States and see if I can't get you into a Christian college. And he said, Mr. Erickson, I'll do that. And on July 31st, he arrived, and he's been living in our family, going to college now for the last nine months. An incredible young man who just wrote his final exam in his English class last Friday. When asked by the professor, what are the three most important things that you can teach children in America? And here is what Nikki wrote in that final exam. To teach the children to love God, to love neighbor, and to work hard. That's Nikki, Natalia's son. Well, we returned from that visit, having made some contacts and and uh, started some things, trying to be open to serve in different ways. And last summer. Two members of the Russian parliament visited us, stayed in our home, both of them proclaiming to be atheists. And we just sort of lived out the vertical. There is someone greater than the system to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the message, the vertical and the horizontal. And on the last day in the U.S., they wanted to go shopping in the largest mall in our area, discount mall. They'd been there one day before, and that's where they wanted to spend their time. So as we were driving down there, one of them said, Sam, you know, one thing we're not going back with is that we really want is some material, some, some public school curriculum that integrates morality and values into the curriculum. We don't have any of that stuff in the Soviet Union at that time. And I said, well, that's, that's a need, but I don't think we're going to find it at the mall. <laughs> and uh, so we sort of dismissed it, and we got to the mall, and they went off to do their thing, and I sat down in the food court to write some letters, and I had my Bible along, and I was... And I left that to go make some phone calls. And when I returned, there was this black gentleman sitting there. And he says to me, my wife, uh, who had been with him, thinks you're a minister. And 
I said, well, that's uh, not the I'm not an ordained minister. Uh, he's, and why does she think that? Well, you're reading your Bible. I said, well, there are a lot of people that read the Bible that aren't ministers. Then he said, my wife also thinks you must be a secure person. Why is that? Well, you've been gone for 10 minutes, and you left your briefcase here, you left your Bible and all the stuff. And he said, well, that's either a sense of security or a sense of foolishness. But I could tell he wanted to talk, so I sat down, and he introduced himself. He says, my name is Jim Smith. And I said, Jim? As soon as he said his name, I remembered him. He said, Jim, I'm Sam Erickson. And his jaw dropped. He said, Sam, I was in your office nine years ago when you helped me in a need. And I remember share, you shared that we're never the owner, always a steward. We talked about the vertical and the horizontal. Why are you here at this mall today? And I said, I'm here with a couple of members of the Russian parliament who are doing some shopping. He said, Russians? I said, yeah. And he said, I'm going to Russia in a few weeks myself. I said, you are? What are you going to do in Russia? He says, well, I'm going over there with three colleagues, including one fellow who's written some curriculum for the public schools in Russian on integrating Christian values into the curriculum. Chance, coincidence, accident, authorship, design, sovereignty. How do you read it? What's your perspective? On the way back from that mall, guess what we talked about in the car? Is there a designer, an author, a sovereign God, or is it just one big game of chance? And these people, these two members of parliament, opened up and shared that there were times in their lives as they looked back, because life can only be understood backwards but must be lived forward, as they looked back, that they saw the hand of someone in their lives. That was last September. In November, Natalia visited our home for five weeks to see how Nikki was doing and to make some contacts. And at the same time that she was in, our, in, in the area, the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, who is the leader of some 70 million Orthodox, was visiting Washington, D.C. And one morning, Natalia said to me, Sam, you need to meet the patriarch Alexis II. And I said, well, that's very nice to say, but I have no power base. I have the people's ministries here, staff of one half and myself. We're not exactly, you know, the powerful here. And, and uh, I don't have the time in any event. And she said, well, I'm going to pray about it. And I said, well, you go right ahead. <laughs> An hour later, World Vision called up the Washington, D.C. office and said, did you know that the patriarch is in town? And I said, yeah, I've, I'm aware of that. She says, could you represent World Vision at a breakfast this Saturday? And I said, well, how big is the breakfast going to be? If it's 250 people, I don't want to just be lost in the crowd. If they're 12 to 15 or 20, I'll come. And he says, well, it's my understanding there's 12 to 15 people. I said, fine, I'll go for you. When I arrived, there were 250 people there. <laughs> and I was not at the head table. And I picked a table where I saw a friend working with the State Department there, and I sat down next to him. And the fellow to my right asked me what I did. And I said, well, I'm with a little place called the People's Place, People's Ministries, and we do different small things. And, but I'm here this morning representing World Vision. Do they help the hungry and so forth? And he said, oh. And I asked, what do you do? He says, well, I'm a Russian professor up at a college in New York, but I'm the backup interpreter for the patriarch. I said, oh, that's interesting. At the end of the breakfast, the master of ceremonies says, we've got to, we want to give special recognition this morning to five very special guests. And then they gave recognition to 
the president of Brother to Brother, a relief organization, the president of another relief organization, the gal who had put together the breakfast, to George Lister, the fellow sitting to my left from the State Department. I thought, well, that's great that George gets a little recognition. He deserves it. And then to Sam Erickson of World Vision. I just about fell out of my chair. And then the interpreter took me up to meet the patriarch. And during my discussion with him, I mentioned prison ministries and Natalia's ministry and prison fellowship. And he says, next time you're in Moscow, let's talk prisons. And I said, fine. I have no plans to go to Moscow. But six days later, prison fellowship asked if I would go to Moscow. But before we got to Moscow, we had to fly by way of Latvia for a missions conference, and in Latvia, we met Natalia. The plan was to fly Aeroflot, the Russian airline, from Latvia to Moscow. Unfortunately, that weekend, Aeroflot announced that they had no fuel, so they grounded all domestic flights. So how do you get from Latvia to Moscow? You take the train. We called up the train station that Saturday to get some tickets. All the tickets were sold. We needed to get to Moscow to meet the patriarch. Fifteen minutes after we find out that that the train station had no tickets, Natalia comes over holding three tickets in her hands. I said, Natalia, what's this? And she said, I just met a woman here who a month ago bought three extra tickets one way from Latvia to Moscow, and she sold them to me for 33 rubles apiece, which is 33 cents apiece. And we had the most interesting train ride, 13 hours from Latvia to Moscow. So it reminded me of Dr. Zhivago. And when we got to Moscow, there was a car waiting for us and a driver at the train station. And I said, Natalia, how did this get here? And she said, well, you know, you asked me to make some appointments, and I tried to make an appointment with the patriarch, so I went down to his office, and they made me wait for five hours. You know, I'm a lawyer, I'm a woman. They didn't have any time for me, and finally they were just too embarrassed to make me wait any longer, and they asked me in. I told them about our prison ministry and told them about prison fellowship and about you coming and so forth, and... And they were so encouraged by what we were doing that he said, what can, I know they were so apologetic and felt so bad about having to make me wait. And they said, what can, I, what, what can we do for you? Uh, because we made you wait. And she said, well, Mr. Erickson needs a car while he's here. So the patriarch's assistant said, consider it done. So we had transportation at the expense of the patriarch for three days. But we wanted to meet the patriarch. But before that, we met with the head of the Bureau of Prisons and the chief prosecutor of the Russian Republic. And there we again talked about the vertical dimension and the horizontal dimension. And they said, you know, we're rewriting the regulations for our prisons. My response was, when you write the regulations for the prisons here in Russia, keep this principle in mind. Do to those prisoners exactly what you would want to have the system do to you if you were a prisoner. That's the principle. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. At the end of that meeting with the head of the Bureau of Prisons and the head of the the chief prosecutor, Natalia, both of the non-believers, probably atheists, Natalia said, I think we should close in prayer. That's what they do in America. So she had a stand. Here's a woman, Orthodox lawyer, and women have virtually no role in the church, in the Orthodox church, Asked us all to stand. And here we were, nine of us. And she said, I think we should hold hands because that's what she saw done in our family. When we pray at the dinner table, we always hold hands. 
And so she had us all stand and hold hands. Now, you know, Russian men kiss one another in greeting, but holding hands is totally taboo. But these men, because Natalia's got that strong personality, they held hands. And then Natalia led in prayer and opened up the prisons to prison fellowship. But we still wanted to meet the patriarch, and we had one day left, Tuesday. Between 11 and 2 was the only window that we could meet him. It turns out that in God's sovereign plan and his perfect timing, that many months earlier, the patriarch had planned a special service on Tuesday between 11 and 2 at Natalia's church. There were 11,000 churches he could have chosen in Russia to be at that Tuesday, but he chose Natalia's church. Chance, coincidence, accidents, or is this authorship, sovereignty, design? A sovereign God. And at that luncheon, we met the patriarch, and he gave his blessing to prison fellowship and to Natalia's prison ministry and toasted. Now, I'm not in, you know, I come from a non-toasting tradition. Bible churches don't toast, but in Russia, they toast. And here they were toasting prison ministries and toasting prison fellowship. And this was not Coca-Cola toasting. And then they were toasting the prison prisoners and toasting prison administrators and the head of the largest prison in Moscow was there in attendance and we saw him afterwards and he was in tears he said I have been in prison work for 40 years I'm a hardline communist no one ever has said anything good about prison work until today he says I want you to come to my prison and we said we wish we could sir but we've got other appointments and we can't really go to your prison. He says, I want you to come to my prison. So we said, yes, sir. (laughs) And at his prison, after he toasted us, he says, I want to set space available for you to build a chapel in our prison, the largest prison in Moscow. Recently, I received a letter from Natalia advising me that as a result of our visit, the Orthodox Church and the prisons, she'd been able to place Bibles to virtually every inmate on death row throughout Russia, that she has placed Bibles, the largest men's, the Gospel of John, the largest men's prison in Moscow, and the women's prison, and the juvenile hall. And she continues to work to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly, Micah 6.8. Because she wants to live out Matthew 25, which says, I was in prison and you visited me. That's her life verse. You know how much it costs to hire a lawyer to do justice in the Soviet Union for inmates in Russia? 50 cents a day. 50 rubles a day. 50 cents. $200 a year and you have hired yourself a full-time lawyer to do justice. That's what we're about at the the people's ministries, people's places to resource small ministries like that. I want to close with uh, two final comments. One is I want to teach you one Russian word, the word for thank you. It's spasiba, S-P-A-C-I-B-O, spasiba. Spasiba, if you break it down, has two parts, spasi bo. Spasi means to save, and ba is the abbreviated form for bog, which is the word for God. So what spasiba means literally, and every Russian will tell you this, 
Spasiba means may God save you. Can you imagine for the last 75 years, every time a Marxist, communist, atheist has said, Spasiba, comrade, he has knowingly been saying to his comrade, may God save you, comrade. Who wrote that story? Let me close with this final story. On my first visit to the Soviet Union, I brought along with me a classmate of mine, Sam Miller from Texas. Uh, Sam had, was just in my office a few weeks before I was to leave for Russia, and when he found out I was going to Russia, he said, I'll give my right arm to go with you. I'll carry your bags for you. I'll do anything. Well, he's a rather well-to-do lawyer, so I said, if you pay your own way and then some, I'll bring you along. <laughs> and so he came along, and when we landed in Moscow Airport, I was so encouraged that after going through customs that he, as we were about to go through customs, that he had picked up my big black garment bag and that he was taking it through the, 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 the customs and so forth. That was real encouragement because he said he would carry my bags for me. And uh, I didn't realize until we were 30 miles away at the hotel that he had an identical garment bag to my own. And my garment bag was sitting back at Moscow Airport. A misplaced suitcase. How can the Lord use misplaced baggage? Well, one of the translators, her name is Natasha, the next day went with me and the driver to retrieve my garment bag. It was just the two of us. And in this time of two hours in the car, I was able to tell the story. Use another acrostic, majesty. M, God is the maker of heaven and earth. A, he allowed the fall of sin. J, Jews, he chose a people to bring in salvation, redemption. Majesty, E, to demonstrate his eternal love. Yes, salvation on the cross. And the T, our calling to tell everyone and why your response, majesty. And I told that story to her. And at the end of telling her the story of history, his story, I asked her this. I said, Natasha, assume you were convicted and had been convicted of a crime and you were standing before a judge in the courtroom and you knew that the sentence was going to be death and you were just about to hear that sentence pronounced by the judge. And as the judge is about to speak, your defense counsel speaks up and he says, if it pleases this court, my client is guilty as charged and deserves death. But I have a proposition. If it pleases this court, if the court agrees, I will serve my client's sentence and die in her place. Natasha, the judge now turns to you, and what you need to know is that your defense attorney is the son of the judge, so we've got a lot at stake here. And the judge turns to you and says, Natasha, you're guilty and you're deserving of death. You've heard the gracious offer of your defense counsel. This court is willing to accept that proposal, but the answer must be yours. What is your answer, Natasha? 
And I asked her, what would you say to the judge? And she said, after thinking for quite a while, she said, I'd turn down the offer. See, I've, I've used that illustration before with Americans. No American had ever turned down the offer. I said, why would you turn down the offer? She said, it wouldn't be right for an innocent person to die for me. And I said, well, let me just bring that story a little bit more into factual correctness and say this. What if your defense counsel had already died and paid the penalty and all you had to do was step into his shoes? I said, that's the real story. And she says, well, that makes all the difference. So that's right. Now, Natasha did not accept Christ at that time. I shared the prayer that she should pray. But three days later, she came back and she said, you know, Sam, over the weekend, I told my husband the story, the big story about God's plan for history. Then I told him the story about the courtroom event. And today, I shared that story with five colleagues at my office. A non-believing former communist translator witnessing the story. That is the sovereign God we serve, whose timing is so perfect, who provides opportunities for service for all of us. The theme is redemption. The issue is your response. Spasiba. May God save us. So send I you. We're going to close with that.